Hey, before you sit down, let's just pause for a moment and let's pray and give God thanks for this day. God, that the word thanks almost seems way too small for what we are gathered here to celebrate. Uh, Lord, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. God, in one very real sense, we celebrate this day every day. At least I do. I wake up every day and realize I have new life because of uh, a risen Savior that we call Jesus. But Lord, we do set aside some time in our Western culture here to focus on what happened 2,000 years ago when Jesus rose from the dead. So God, as we now talk about that and try to make some sense of that from your word, I pray, God, that you would speak to us, each of us individually here and watching online and at other campuses and venues, and then, uh, Lord, all of us collectively as a whole, as a church before you. So thanks for this day. We pray this in Jesus' name, and we say together as a church, amen. You can have a seat. Well, when I was uh, 15 years old, about 15 and a half, I did something that most of you guys do. I started to learn to drive. This was back before the day that we used to outsource it to other people. The old man taught me to drive. I'm from Ohio, and we have a lot of backcountry roads in Ohio, and so my dad took me out in his Toyota Corolla SR5 for you car guys, and it had a five-speed manual transmission. Dad felt that he needed to learn to drive a clutch car, and he taught me how to drive on the back roads of Ohio. He taught me how to stop. He taught me how to start, how to turn corners, how to parallel park. He, he was actually a very good teacher. And being a lawyer himself, I'll never forget what he taught me about speed limits. You know, we were on the valley floor, Chagrin River Road. I remember the road, and we were driving along it, and there was a sign that said 35 MPH. And Dad said to me, you'll notice that the posted speed limit is 35 miles an hour, but I want to let you know that if you choose to, you can go faster than that. And I remember thinking as a 15-year-old kid in an era of muscle cars, sweet, my ship had come in. I thought the old man just said I could go faster than the posted speed limit. And knowing what I was thinking, knowing exactly what I was thinking, before I could even respond, Dad said, of course, if you choose to go above the posted speed limit, then you better be prepared to suffer the consequences. And he said, and if you choose to speed as a driver, then you very well might get a ticket, and I don't want you whining to me. He said, you can choose to do just about anything you want to in life, but if you do and it's the wrong choice, then you better suffer the consequences for that. I remember that like it was yesterday. And as a result of that, both the freedom that it gave me to choose what I want, but then also the responsibility that would come with it, I got to tell you, I've gotten very few tickets over the years. I drive a fast car, but knock on wood, I haven't gotten a ticket in my entire stay here in Arizona. It's been over a decade and a half, and I credit that in great part to my dad. You know, dad was always good at what I call if-then statements. I think you guys are too. My dad would say things like this, if you're not home by midnight, then your curfew is going to be different next time. He would say, if you study hard for this exam, then you're going to be able to do well on it. If you don't listen to your mother, then you're going to deal with me when you get home. If you go to college and work hard, then you're going to have a lot of opportunities before you. If you don't spend more money than you earn, then you'll never go into debt. Dad was really good at if than statements. Think about it, guys. Life really is made up of a lot of if 
then scenarios. You and I honor them, if not use them all the time. Some of them are warning in tone, and some of them are very positive and life-giving in tone, but they all follow the same pattern, and it's this. If A is true, then B most likely will follow. And every one of us, no matter what generation you're from, tends to think like that because much of life is that way. And here's the deal. I would submit to you that the Easter claim is no different. You see, Easter claims that a man who asserted to be from God and even claimed to be God come in the flesh was killed and placed in a grave for three days. Enough time for a body to get nice and cold, truly and fully dead. But on that first Easter morning 2,000 years ago, the grave was found empty and Jesus was alive. A resurrection from the dead had occurred. That's the claim of Easter. That's the if, if you will, of Easter. That's the starting point. That's what the Bible says. But as you and I, who tend to think in terms of if, then, we then have to ask, well, if that's what is true, then what are the implications of that? But what does that matter to my life? I mean, it was 2,000 years ago for crying out loud, and there's lots of other religions and lots of other religious claims. If Jesus was raised from the dead, if it's true, then what does it mean for you and me today? You know, one thing I love about Easter is that our church doesn't just get slightly bigger on Easter, but we also get a bit broader. There's three types of people, three groups of people that will attend services here at Scottsdale Bible Easter weekend. The first are those of you who don't really believe all this Easter malarkey, but you're here because your mom dragged you here. Can you own that today? I mean, maybe it wasn't your mom, maybe it was a friend, a spouse, a coworker, a neighbor, but somebody harangued you into coming to church today, and you don't want to be seen as irreligious, and so you came. And we probably won't see you till next Christmas, but you really don't believe this stuff, but, but you're here, and, and that's a good thing. Uh, we'll get to you in a second. The second group of those of you who are here, <laughs> we will, is... is, is those who kind of believe the Easter message. Now, hopefully you can own this with me some of you. you. You're not an atheist. I mean, it's not like you're a big fan of Howard Stern or something like that. It's just that you're, you kind of believe this stuff, but it really hasn't affected your life very much. You're what we call, call a casual believer. It's really not a Monday through Saturday thing. You do your religious thing every now and then, and you're here because it's Easter. And again, I'm glad that you're here. And then there's a third group of you here today. It's what I might call the more convicted, cemented believers. You're here because Easter is deep in your belief structure, and you're here to celebrate in spirit and in truth. Three different groups of people here today, but let me unify us all right now. We're all here together, no matter where you might be spiritually, and I'm here to tell you that the if-then approach to Easter that if Jesus was raised from the dead, then what does this mean is something that's relevant for every one of us here. I mean, if you're a skeptic here today, then what we're gonna do with you today is I'm gonna help you know at least what it is you're doubting, maybe even what it is you're missing or dismissing, and maybe nudge you more to consider faith in this Jesus if you're here as a casual believer, I want to help you today fill in the gaps 
on that which you are missing and help you have a better application of Easter in your Monday through Saturday life. And then obviously, if you're a convinced believer, hang on to your seat. Because what we want to do with you today is fire you up on what Easter really means intellectually as well as personally. And then we're going to end all of us together, the venues and campuses, with a powerful song, a motivating song here in just a few minutes. So let's spend the remainder of our time playing the if-then game with Easter. Three thens based on the primary if of the Easter claim. And here's the first one. And that is that if Jesus rose from the dead, if that's true at all, then there's more beyond this life. Did you know that? I mean, I'll say it even more strongly for you. If Jesus really did rise from the dead and you believe that, then you have backed yourself into a corner in which your worldview, that which you bank on, says this is not all that there is. There has to be more than just this life. Let me show you how the Bible clearly says this. Uh, Paul the Apostle, one of Jesus' closest followers, at one point, believe it or not, was playing the if-then game with Easter. And let me show you what he wrote. It's in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 17 through 20. And he's playing this if-game scenario with this idea of the resurrection. Look at what he says. He says, and if Christ has not been raised from the dead, then your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep or died in Christ, through faith in Christ, will have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep or died. Track his logic here. This really is kind of cool here. He's saying negatively first that if Christ has not been raised from the dead, let me paraphrase the rest, you all might as well go home. And don't come back because church is not worth coming to. Fire your pastor. Get rid of all the shenanigans because if Jesus was not raised from the dead, then where is he? Six feet under along with everybody else. And you pinned your hopes on a savior who's not real. You pin your hopes on somebody who's dead. And if you do that, you are most to be pitied of everybody else in life. The atheists got it right, and they're a lot better than you because at least they're not constrained by all these other things that you believe. They're freed up to be the hedonists that they want to be. That's what the Bible is saying here. But he's saying that's not actually the fact. He's saying the fact is Christ has been raised from the dead. That's the big if there. And because of that, that when we fall asleep who trust in him, it is not the end. In fact, that's why it uses words like fall asleep. They don't even want to use the word dead because the reality is, is that when you, quote, die, when your body stops working as a believer in Jesus, you go on to a better place. And so don't miss this, gang. What Paul is doing here is he's pinning his entire theology of eternal life on the literal resurrection of Jesus Christ. Have you ever thought of it that way? 
And he's saying that if Christ wasn't raised, if Easter never happened, then let's just pack it up and go home. But he has been raised, and because of that, there is more, lots more, when we die. We're just passing through this world. It's not our home. We were made for heaven, and Jesus showed us that by raising from the dead. So I love how Jürgen Moltmann, years ago, one of the better theologians out of Germany, once put this in his book, Experiences of God. This is very poetic, but I love how he says it. He says, Easter is celebrated as the feast of freedom. For Easter is the beginning of the laughter of the redeemed and the dance of the liberated. He says, since earliest times, Easter hymns have celebrated the victory of life by laughing at death, by mocking at hell, and by making the lords of this world absurd. He says, Easter is God's protest against death Easter is the feast of freedom from death. Let me ask you a question. Do you see death this way? I tell you, most Americans don't. Most Americans, when they go to a funeral, they dress in black, and there's lots of tears, and it's really somber. And the last thing you'd want to do is say, hey, hey, sorry about that, but glad the person's in heaven. Glad that they're freed from this physical body. We're celebrating with you. When was the last time you ever said that? at a funeral. It doesn't even equate. We don't think like that as Americans. But you know, many people do. I pastored for a few years in Canada when I first got into the senior pastorate and the uh, church that I was at was a 108-year-old Baptist church. And, and this thing acted like a 108-year-old Baptist church. I mean, it was just stuck in the, in the past. But it was filled with a lot of very loving, wonderful first-generation immigrants from World War II into Canada. And these people had a rough life before that. I mean, some of them were Irish potato farmers. Other of them went through the war as, uh, in Poland. And, and I mean, they were so thankful to come to Canada, but they knew what life could deal with them, and it was hard. One particular uh, time, I did a funeral early on when I was there, and it was for an Irish immigrant who had a really rough life and died a brutal death, uh, just a long disease, and his name was Dennis, and I, and I did his funeral, and his widow, Irene, was there. And being a young pastor from America, man, I thought I knew how to do funerals. I mean, I just nailed it. I, I got up there and preached my sermon, and it was all about grieving and tears, and I talked about the five stages of grief, and here's the three things you can do to help you grieve and all that. And then at the very end, I said, oh, and by the way, Jesus Christ is real, and Dennis is in heaven. Amen. And then I ended the funeral. I'll never forget Irene coming up to me. And this little Irish woman, and I can't imitate an Irish accent. I leave that to Neil, but, but in her thick Irish accent, she said, Jamie, thank you for doing my husband's funeral. I want to tell you, don't ever do a funeral like that in Canada again. <laughs> and I didn't know what she meant. And she said, I appreciate you trying to sympathize with me, but uh, Dennis is with the Lord. He's happier now than on his best day here, and I'm thrilled that he's with him. I'm going to join him soon. And quite frankly, that's what we need to hear at a funeral. <laughs> Ever since then, I've never done a funeral the same way. Uh, my friend Tom Schrader, some of you know Tom, brags that he does the best funeral in Phoenix, which I think is a strange thing to brag about. <laughs> So I asked Schrader a while back, I said, tell me, Tom, what makes your funerals the best funeral in Phoenix? And he said, because I get up at every one of them and I say I am so jealous of the person that's gone before us and I can't wait until it's my turn. 
Let me ask you, who thinks like that? Do you know people that think like that? I don't. Not too many. You're not going to get that on Oprah. You're not going to get that on Dr. Phil. You're not going to get that tomorrow at work. The reality is our world doesn't see death like that. You do, though. Why? Because if Jesus was raised from the dead, then there has to be more. There is more than just this life. And it's something that we can pin our hopes on. Now, we're just ramping up. That's the first thing. The second thing that the Bible tells us here is that if Jesus rose from the dead, then life can be better now. Did you know that? It's not just touching the afterlife, but if Jesus rose from the dead, then life can and should be better now. Now, we got to be very careful with this one and be clear on what we mean here. Look at what the Bible says. In 1 John 5, verses 4 and 5, it says this, For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? So unpack a little bit of what it's saying here. Let's start backwards. It says that when you believe in this resurrected Jesus, that you now have a faith. And this faith is so powerful that something's coursing through your spiritual veins right now that it gives you victory in your life to the point that you overcome things of this world. That's what this passage is saying here. So it all goes back to this resurrected Jesus that somehow is giving you power. We know from other scriptures it's through the Holy Spirit so that we can overcome things in life. Now, we need to be very careful in our understanding and application of this passage because it doesn't mean that every Christian is going to lead a perfect life. Give me a head nod that you all understand that. When somebody says to me, I love it, when somebody says to me, I don't want to go to Scottsdale Bible Church because it's filled with hypocrites. You know what my response is to that? No, it's not full. We got room for one more. (laughs) Right? (laughs) Because at the end of the day, We're all hypocrites. I mean, I've been doing this thing for 35 years. I'm a lot better than I was, but follow me around for 24 hours and you'll go, he ain't what I think he is. Because I got issues. You got issues. But I love how Chuck Swindoll said it years ago. He said, here's the goal of sanctification or becoming more like Christ. Three steps forward, two steps backward. Right? I I mean, be realists with me. The reality is, is that you have good days and you have bad days. It's no different as a follower of Jesus. But what the Bible does say is that as a follower of Jesus, as you journey along with him, who you were is going to become different from who you are now. He's making you better and better. He's making you more to his image. He's making you more like Christ. And again, I know how some of you think, because you're skeptical like me. You're thinking, yeah, Jamie, but I know some Christians, and they don't look very different. And, you know, they're not just hypocritical. I mean, they talk a lot bigger game than they ever deliver on. Let me ask you a question. Are there Christians like that, yes or no? Of course there are. But, But I'm harder on Christians than anybody else. You can ask anybody who attends my church. I understand church people really well. None of them fool me. And I love them, but I also get them, just like my own kids, And I get a front row seat every week to all the good and all the bad of church people. 
And here's one thing that I have noticed, and that is that in the midst of all the mess, and we're going to talk about that over the next six weeks, there's a lot of mess in the church. In the midst of all the mess, there's also some incredibly beautiful and inarguable life change. We call it transformation around here. And whether you believe it or not, but maybe you can take my word for it, I've seen some pretty powerful things over the last 35 years that I can only attribute to God. I have seen chronic adulterers who have cheated on their spouses for years on end become joyfully monogamous. I have seen men who are chronic rageaholics that rage upon their wife and their children become joy-filled and self-controlled and start to repair all the years that the locusts have eaten. I have seen people who are liars and manipulators start to treat others with truth and gentleness. I mean, I have seen life change that at the end of the day, I can only attribute to God working in somebody's life, borderline miraculous. And if you push me even further and say, well, what is it about God that they believe? I would say it's a resurrected Savior who has deposited the Holy Spirit in their lives and now gives them power to overcome and have victory. I mean, I don't know what you thought of the video that we showed you earlier, but just so you know, that's a really fresh and raw video. That thing really happened, and it happened just recently. And that girl is real. And, the, and we show videos like that almost every week here at our church. And, and what we do is, is that we just, the staff is always asking people, you know, what's God doing in your life? What's God doing in your life? What's God doing in your life? And if God's doing nothing, then you're not going to make the video. But, but the reality is... <laughs> No, I'm serious. I mean, there are weeks if you ask me, what's God doing? I'm saying, well, don't put that one on the video. I mean, because it's not worthy of that. But, 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 but also we get stories in which somebody says, oh, I'm so glad you asked. This is what the Lord has done. And then we grab a camera and we ask them to tell their story. And, and again, some of you are really skeptical. We, we don't say to them, hey, embellish it just a little bit for us, would you? We don't do that. We just grab the camera, tell us your story. We edit it because we get about an hour of, uh, of footage usually. We get some B-roll like we did here. But we just want to hear what God is doing. And we show something like that almost every week. Why? Because we want to encourage you. That Yeah, there's lots of down weeks. Yeah, there's lots of weeks where we don't want to grab the camera. I get that. There's a lot of weeks I don't want to grab the camera. But there's also what we call these rainbow days, these bright spots these God sightings in which he breaks through and does something in us. And this is the point, go back to our second point here, that if Jesus rose from the dead, then life can be better now. And he's good for it, and he does that. So if Jesus rose from the dead, then this is not all there is. If he rose from the dead, then life can be better now. And then before we close in song, one third thing, but I'll warn you, this is the most profound thing. It's my favorite thing, and you'll hear why in a second, and that is that if Jesus rose from the dead, then hope lives for everyone. Some of you are chewing on that right now, and you're thinking, really, really? Hope lives for everyone? Hope lives for Howard Stern? Hope lives for Miley Cyrus. Hope lives for Madonna. 
hope lives for all these rebellious people in our culture that don't seem to give a hoot about religion, let alone Jesus? You're trying to tell me that hope lives for them? What's the answer to that? Absolutely yes. The Bible couldn't be more clear. Look at what the Bible says, last verse, 1 Timothy 4, verse 10. It says, for to this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God, which we're going to see in a second here, is Jesus, who is the Savior, that's Jesus, of, now say these two words with me, all people. Some of you didn't move your mouth. Say it again. All people. I looked up that word all in the original Greek that the New Testament was written in. My church hears me do this all the time, but for you new people, you're going to like this. I looked up that word all in the original Greek, and you know what it literally means? Say it with me. All all people, especially of those who believe. Now, let's wrestle with this for a second. What does it mean when it says that Jesus is the Savior of all people who is there to give us hope, especially of those who believe? We have to understand that very clearly. What it's saying here is that Jesus loves everyone. Even if you hate him, even if you don't believe in him, even if you want nothing to do with him, here's the amazing news. Tough, he loves you. And he came for you 2,000 years ago, rooted in history. The history books tell us this. He died on a cross for you to bear your sin upon himself. And then he rose on the third day to show his victory over sin and death. Jesus has done all that for you. He's the savior of the world, of all people, whether or not you even believe that. Now, however, it only becomes true for you it only becomes applied to your life when you believe and receive what he has done for you. That's what it means when it says he's the savior of all people, especially for those who believe. It's not applied until you believe. The greatest illustration I can give you, and I've been using this one for years, and I love this illustration because we can all relate to it, is imagine Christmas Day. And imagine you wake up and you're watching the kids and everybody opening their presents and, 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 and there's a present under there for you, a big one, a nice one, a really expensive one, <clears throat> but somehow you don't see it. And so you get to the end of the day and your spouse says, hey, wasn't that a special Christmas? And you go, no, actually it stunk because I didn't get anything. And then your spouse says, what are you, blind? There's a huge package under there for you. And you unwrap the package, you go, whoa, this is the best Christmas ever. See, I think that's the way a lot of people are interfacing with Jesus. He came for you. He's like that package under the tree. But if you don't unwrap it, if you do not receive that, then you're going to get to the end of the day and feel like you've been robbed. In fact, quite frankly, you will get to the end of the day and you have been robbed. But what a great hope. What a great message to realize that everybody has that gift under the tree. The Apostle Peter would believe this so strongly that at one point he said that, 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 that God desires no one to perish but for everyone to come to repentance. That's God's heart. It's a universal hope. The resurrection was for everyone. You know, one of the saddest things that happens to me when I talk with people, especially skeptics and culture, one of the saddest things when people say to me, well, you Christians are just so intolerant. And, you know, Christianity is so exclusive. And, you know, you're saying Jesus is the only way. And all of you, many of you have heard that before. The reason it makes me so sad is because when you read the Gospels, Jesus didn't come to do any of that. 
In fact, Jesus interacted with people in that culture back then. Think of all the people he interacted with. He didn't interact with church people. Do you guys know that? He came and he interacted with Matthew, the tax collector, and then the woman caught in adultery, and then the woman at the well who had been married more times than Elizabeth Taylor, and then he interacted with Pilate, the Roman governor, and then Zacchaeus climbing up a tree, and then Peter, the great denier. I, I mean, I've said it for years this way, and Christians don't like it when I say this, but I'm telling you, if Jesus was here today, he probably wouldn't be at this service this morning. He, he, he'd, be, he'd be where the masses are interacting with them. He'd be appearing on MSNBC. <laughs> He'd be appearing on CNN. He might even, might even want to appear on Fox News. I don't know. But he'd be interacting with Oprah. He'd be talking with Dr. Phil. He'd be at the Emmys uh, congratulating those Hollywood A-listers. And he wouldn't be doing it to try to get in good with them. He'd be doing it because he wants to tell them some stories about the kingdom of God, and he wants to wet their whistle about the reality of the Father and then draw them to the Father. And the reason that Jesus would do that and not be as concerned with church folk is because of the resurrection being a universal hope. Amen? I mean, that's why Jesus came. He came to set the captives free, to bring hope to you and me, but don't miss this. It's a hope that also is available to Scottsdale and to Phoenix and to Arizona and to the United States and to the entire world. Man, you guys are with it. Good. Amen. Amen. I tell you, you're going to be ready for this last song in just a minute. You will. You guys are going to go nuts. I've been saying for a while here for Scottsdale Bible Church, I think our best days are ahead of us. Maybe some of you guests will now see why. We got a nucleus here, people that are fired up about the Lord. And we're not fired up because, you know, we're just highly religious people. In fact, I did a sermon a while back that, that it's not about religion, it's about relationship. You heard that a little bit in the video here. And it really is. We're not very religious people around here. We're too diverse. But we are people that are excited about a relationship with a risen Christ. And he's the one who came for our very souls. Amen. So add it all up. Jesus rose from the dead. And if that is true, then there's more to this life than you can ever imagine. If that is true, your life can be different now. And if that is true, then there is a hope universal offered to everybody in this world. I just love it. I mentioned earlier that um, we're going to close today here and in our campuses and venues with a, uh, a song that we've chosen that is a newer song to us. We don't sing it a ton around here, but it's one that gives us it brings home to us the, the meaning of Easter. And so if you're brand new here today and you don't know this song, then uh, just listen initially. The words are really powerful, and uh, the tune is really cool too. And so uh, maybe listen to this and then uh, join in as you start to learn it. But we want to send you off on a really high note, and this song will do that. I hope you believe. I hope you trust Jesus. I hope today, if you believe for the first time, becomes your spiritual birthday. Why don't you pray with me right now? Father, I thank you for this day. I thank you for a day that we can set aside to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
As I started with God, in a very real sense, every day is resurrection day because every day these things we have talked about here today apply to our very lives. Every day matters because of who Jesus is. I pray, God, that as we give thought to our lives, maybe if we're a skeptic here today or a casual believer or even a convinced believer, and we give thought to this if-then equation, that God, you'd penetrate. God, help us to be reasonable people who understand who you are and how you want to be Lord and Savior of our very lives. And bring us home to you, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.